Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. so excited to put out this episode. I know I say that a lot, but I I loved this conversation so much. I could have kept Ty talking for the next, I don't know, two, three hours easy. And I felt like I was so lucky to have this time with him um, because he is so in demand. He's everywhere. The New York Times, The Washington Post, Esquire, BBC. He's done TED Talks. He's just incredible. And he is a social scientist, author, and relationship expert. In his first book, The Science of Happily Ever After, he shows how our decision-making abilities falter when it comes to choosing mates and how we can make smarter choices relying on fascinating insights from social science. And his research is so interesting, so incredible. He talks all about it here. We talk about the idea of the three wishes. You'll find out more about that. I ask him all about uh, how are Disney movies, you know, and the romance of the prince and the princess and everything we see in romantic comedies, all these magazine articles and everything about finding your perfect match and everything. How are they all inhibiting us from finding a relationship that makes sense, that's exciting, that's all the things we want it to be while being a long-term lasting thing. So he gives us all his incredible insights. There are so many tidbits in this episode that if you have kids who are maybe thinking about dating or are dating that you're going to want to share with them and sprinkle here and there in your conversations, just like I'm trying to do with my kids. And um, if you're dating yourself, there's so much valuable information. Plus, there is so much in here that I want to actually apply to my marriage because, uh, I don't know, just so much good stuff. So please enjoy my conversation with Ty Tashiro. You can find him on Instagram uh, or online um, at tytashiro.com. Pick up his book and um, just enjoy. Hey, Ty, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I first heard about you when I was listening to uh, Shan Booty, do you know who Shan Booty is? She's a oh, uh, sex I don't know. <laughs> okay. And she was talking okay. about you and I love her. And so I was like, oh, I got to check this guy out. Yeah. And when I did, um, you just have done so many interesting, um, I want to say like, I mean, the research you've done is, I think it's everybody's dream to just be able to like study love and study how it happens and I mean, it's pretty awesome. It, it is kind of the dream, I have to say. Like, I have to pinch myself sometimes. I've been 
allowed to call this my job, I guess, because uh, I remember sitting around in high school or college and you're just, you know, you have your own theories about what might be going on with attraction or dating or all these things. And then it was actually a shock to me when I got to graduate school to realize that people were applying the scientific method uh, to dating and to love. And I thought, wow, this is just so cool. And to see the advances that people had made too, to, you know, parse apart, which really seems like this magical or chaotic <laughs> process, uh, I just thought was, was remarkable. So yeah, I am lucky that I've been able to uh, study it and to share it with people and you know, hear people's stories about how they react to some of this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many cool experiments and stuff that I would love to be a part of, and I'm sure so many other people would too. Want to give us a little bit about your background? And I know you said you live in New York City. I know you're a professor at the uh, University of Maryland. Yeah. So I was a professor at Maryland in Colorado for a while. And then um, it was actually funny. I had some of my students coming in during office hours at the University of Colorado. And they were working with this famous uh, business author in town. And, and they kept saying, you should write a book. And um, I guess I just took their advice one day. And so I wrote the first book, The Science of Happily Ever After, uh, about the science of dating. And uh, it was largely because of my students at the University of Colorado. So I'm happy right now uh, just doing the book. And then I'll do some consulting here and there for uh, technology companies. But you know, the, the book keeps me pretty, keeps me pretty busy. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I love living in New York city. It's just a great place with so much, so many ideas, so many different kinds of people and, yes. uh, so many interesting things. Uh, right. and I'm sure you hear on. all kinds of love stories living in New oh, York. City. I sure do. <laughs> you have some <laughs> of the wildest love stories and some of the most interesting conundrums living in this city. Um, I feel like uh, this, the whole city seems like it's single. So um, people are going through the ups and downs of love all the time. Right. And you talk a lot about how right now, well, right now, I think so many of us, uh, I know I talk about it a lot as a mom, um, you know, are, are dealing with decision fatigue, right? That's like a real thing that we just are. I mean, we are literally like, I don't want to make one more decision in my life. And one thing about dating right now is that, I mean, it is the options are endless with the apps. And, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it, it seems like in some ways it might be harder because of COVID and everything like that. But also there are just endless options. You know, when you when you think about social media and all the places there are to meet people that it. It, it does sort of make sense that people are trying to find a way to narrow down. How do I choose, you know, when there's I'm, I'm swiping through 100 people a day? What is the formula? You know, what do I choose? And um, and that's kind of where you come in. Yeah, there's there's some ways, you know, to make it a little bit less complicated. I think that's the wonderful thing. Uh, about dating and the possibilities of love is it just seems limitless and endless in some ways. Uh, but like you said, one of the tough things about modern dating is just the overwhelming number of choices, the decision fatigue. Uh, some other social psychologists will call it the tyranny of freedom, which is such a dramatic phrase, but I think does get to the point that it, it's even true. if you go to, yeah, you go to buy detergent at the Target and you're like, my God, I'm overwhelmed by the number of choices 
available. And yeah, so in consumer settings, what you see is people just kind of get like, like paralyzed by the being overwhelmed by so many choices and they end up not getting what they want. Uh, the same thing obviously happens in dating. I think online dating has been great in certain ways, but the way most of us have been trained to use it is totally overwhelming and oftentimes leads to people spinning their wheels and just getting really frustrated with the whole process. So yeah, I'm right there with you that uh, we're tired of making decisions <laughs> and in dating, I, I, I think it's certainly no different. So one of the nice things I think that, uh, I mean, there's not a lot of great things, I guess, that happened during the past two years comparatively, but in, in the context of dating, one of the things that happened early on was that because you couldn't go on seven different dates every week, people were slowing it down. And there was some evidence that people were being more selective and actually talking to people more instead of just going off of the physical appearance. It was a really positive development from my perspective, but I'm not that optimistic that uh, we'll keep some of that wisdom going forward. Right. We can say that about so many parts of COVID. Like there was so much stuff that we slowed down and, you know, we're sort of like, oh, we're going to stay this way. And then, you know, life happens and you're like, oh, I guess we're picking back up again. But um, but you say when being in love, it's you know broken into smaller parts. We see that it's three parts liking and one part lust. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So this was some of the early research they did. You know, for any research area uh, in any area of science, one of the things you want to know is, well, what is this thing? You know, and with romantic love, that seems super mysterious and maybe too complicated uh, to boil down to something understandable. Well, there were a few researchers and they would do these things like ask people what they thought it meant to be in love or uh, what love meant to them. And they'd gather these responses and then they would kind of sort them right into the most common kinds of things. And they went through all of these steps, all of these steps, and what they found after hundreds or thousands of responses and all these statistical analyses was that romantic love, being in love, came down to two things. It came down to, do you like the person? And do you have lust for the person? And uh, sometimes people have romantic situations where they just like the person. And then that's just kind of, well, that's a friend, right? Um, But they kind of want it to be something else. Other times they just have lust for the person. Uh, that's usually just like a booty call, right? Because mm-hmm. they don't really have the liking. And when you think back, yeah, when I was in love, really those two parts exist. And it's not in equal parts if you want something that's going to be sustainable. Uh, what they find in long-term studies of couples when they follow them for decades is that this certain form of love they call companionate love. It's like, you know, I just really like you. I just really like hanging out with you. I like being around you. Uh, That companionate love is really what drives long-term relationship success and satisfaction. So yeah, you need kind of three parts of the liking, but you have to have the lust too. Uh, Obviously when that's missing in ongoing relationships, it's a a big deal. Uh, My old advisor in graduate school had a great point. She said, you know, you can play tennis with anybody and that's okay. You can, in most, in most cultures like the US, you can only have sex with one person. So it better be pretty good, right? right. And uh, that, so we put a lot of emphasis on that. But yeah, you have to have both parts there. And I think sometimes when people get confused, if you just go back to those fundamentals, all of a sudden some things make sense that oh, I just have a friend or I just have a booty call or 
oh, our relationship's out of whack and the balance of the liking and lust. Right. Right. And, and about the, you, you talk about the three wishes that you can have three wishes when it comes to choosing your partner. And that is, I mean, I feel like, so I feel like that is something I want you to explain what it is, but to me, it feels like something we can use in so many aspects of our relationship, um, which I want to talk to you about, but can you talk about the three wishes as far as finding a romantic partner? Yeah, sure, sure. So I I taught this undergraduate course at the University of Maryland, and it was essentially the psychology of romantic relationships. And it was a really fun class, as you could imagine, it was about 200 students. And uh, what was amazing, it was like a lot of discussion in in this big class, because they just, you know, they had a lot of personal interest in in the topic. One of the exercises we would do in that class is I would say, okay, in your notebook, just just write down what do you want in your ideal romantic partner? I'm like, just dream big and go crazy. And they would take quite a while because they had a lot of things to write down. And they'd write usually between like 20 or 25 traits or characteristics. You know, I want someone hot. I want someone tall. (laughs) You know, I want someone who's exciting. And that's all great. But then we, I would ask a few people to volunteer their lists, which they were more eager to do than I expected. But, um, and then I'd take the first three things they had listed, uh, right, for their ideal traits. And then we would just kind of go through and say, what are the odds that you could find that person? So, for example, let's say somebody wanted someone who was hot, which I think a lot of people <laughs> probably do. Well, let's say that's a, so I'd ask them on a scale of zero to 10, what's hot? They'd say, oh, it's a nine or a 10. Okay. So I said, imagine you're choosing a male partner and there's a room of 100 single men randomly selected from the population. If you wanted somebody who was hot, nine out of 10, that would mean 90 of those 100 men would walk out of the room. You got rid of them with one wish, your first wish. Now let's say you want someone who's tall and to you that means someone who is, let's say six foot or taller. Well, in the US only about 20% of men are six foot or taller. So among the 10 men left, eight of them would walk out of the room. So after two wishes, you're down to two out of the 100 original men that you had to select from. So let's say now you want someone with a college degree. Well, that's maybe 35, 40%. So now you're left with like a fraction of a man. you know, out of, out of your initial 100. And it never mattered whose list I took or what the first three characteristics were. Uh, We want so much and we want it at such a high level that oftentimes without thinking about it, we're narrowing down our possibilities to something that's improbable or even impossible sometimes. So that's the three wishes. It's just this idea that like, it's great to shoot for the stars and it's, great to have a lot of aspirations. I'm not saying people should, you know, compromise in a way that makes them unhappy or they're settling for things. Uh, The point is, is you want to be crystal clear on the three things that are most important to you in a partner, because you want to be sure you get those characteristics. If you just have this kind of haphazard list of 20 or 25 things, you end up maybe missing out on the characteristics that are most important to you. Right. And it's hard because so many of us, when I started dating Adam, my husband, we were 21, 20. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to, to think about the journey that we've had and everything and the different 
phases of our marriage and the times that we've, you know, been passionate and the times that we've felt more like roommates and stuff like that. When you're, you know, when you're dating, when you're you know, a teenager or 21 or even in your 40s or 50s, you know, trying to find love again, it's really hard to 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 do that, to narrow it down like that, because we change so much as people over time. Um, and and what we I think what I wanted at 21 um, is different than what I would say I want now. Do you know what I mean? Even though we've grown together and, you know, we, uh, we love each other and, you know, we now have a wonderful marriage and everything. It is something that I think that if I had to go back and tell myself, and so many of us have children now who are dating, you know, I have a 16 year old and a a 13 year old who's not dating yet, but, um, but, you know, you, you think to yourself, you want to give them guidance for when they're choosing a partner and everything. First of all, if my kid came to me and was like, I want somebody tall. I would be like, all right, let's back up a little bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, let's, right, maybe, right. let's maybe make the, let's try to find some three wishes where we can sort of, you know, how is tall going to help us in the long run? But, but yet I see that, I, you know, I understand behind it. People really do. They, they have these very particular, you know, specific ideals of what they want in a partner. Um, exactly. But, but it is it is hard, I think, to guide our kids um, or or ourselves when we're looking for love, you know, um, because we don't know who we're going to be. Right. Yeah. You're, you're so right about that. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com You know, as you know from your own personal experience, the relationship goes through these evolutions that you could have never anticipated. I mean, you could be yeah. the smartest person in the world. You would never know. Like, right. well, I just really want someone who would take out the trash or put the toilet seat down right now. <laughs> and then there's other times it's like, Hey, I need someone who's going to be stern with the kids when they need to be, uh, or calm when, you know, maybe as a household, we're going through some turbulence, uh, at 21, how would you know that those are going to be some of the things that are important, you know, like you said. So yeah, it, it is, it is tough to know, but I think that's where you kind of get into the part of it where you think, so if I had to pick some general traits that give me the best shot, you know, for having a happy and stable relationship in the long run, the scientific question becomes, well, what would those traits be? Cause there could really be hundreds of things that you could identify that you think might work or might not work. And that's the great thing about research is, you know, researchers fail all the time. <laughs> like that, that's actually most of what they do is they're like, let's try this. Okay, that didn't work. Let's try this. That didn't work. I oftentimes say scientists are just really good at keeping track of their mistakes uh, better than we are in our day-to-day lives. And so over the course of decades uh, in this relationship science, they found which traits and characteristics actually pan out as good predictors of somebody who's going to help you be happy, not only in your 20s, but also your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, And uh, that's kind of what I get into the book a little bit is with these wishes, 
we oftentimes squander our wishes on things that don't matter in the long run, when in fact, we should be focused on other qualities that will have a better return on investment, if you want to think about that way in the long run. Yeah, because you talk about undervalued traits, how we're looking at, you know, for traits and people and and there are traits that you say pan out and are good over the long run. And um, and, you know, for me, one thing that I think I, I I hit the jackpot on with Adam where, you know, there are certain things that I think I would have liked in a partner that maybe he didn't have. And I think there are stuff that he wanted a partner that I didn't have. But one thing we both sort of got, which has been incredible, is um, this this power to just to, to keep fighting for us, you know, to to keep in it and to to be in for the long haul and everything. And and to me, that is, I think, the first thing that I would say to my kids is, you know, you need to find somebody who who's going to be in it for the long haul and, and fight for your relationship. Um, but I'm interested in talking a little bit about what those undervalued traits are. Like, what are we not looking for that we should be? Sure. Well, uh, let me first say, with Adam, it sounds like you made a great wish <laughs> on, the com- on, the, on the commitment, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that, I, mean, really that is an incre- I mean, without that, we never would have made it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of couples w- wouldn't uh, make it without that. And it's missing in a lot of relationships. Sure. You know, you, you all of us know people who are low commitment folks in their relationships. And you do just have to have this stubbornness about you to say, hey, I'm I'm going to be committed to this. I I made this promise to this person. And it's it's a little bit mirrors what we find in research on friendship that, you know, in the friendship research is loyalty. That's one of the three things that's the most important. And in romantic context, that's that's really your relationship commitment. So you're absolutely right about that. I would say if you're giving advice to kids, for example, yeah, that's that's a that's a big deal for a long term relationship yeah. maybe not as much for a prom date or whatever but uh, right, yeah sure. in the long run that's a that's a big deal one of the things that um you know i i found as i was going through all these different studies was that if you ask people what they want in a long-term romantic partner they'll tell you what they think they should say so they'll say i want someone with good character or i want someone who's kind or generous you know. um and that's that's nice that they say that, but there's now studies where they look at what people actually do. So with online dating uh, data or with speed dating, uh, I guess people still do that sometimes, maybe not as much these days, but the, you know, still a thing. You can actually watch which traits people are actually valuing when they're actually selecting a partner. And when you look at that data, it's a little bit, <laughs> a little bit demoralizing or discouraging. So you find that of the three wishes, uh, physical attractiveness and wealth are two of the three wishes people, you know, prioritize the most. So for men, it's looks and then uh, wealth for women, it's wealth. Socioeconomic status could be another way to think about that. And then physical attractiveness. So, you know, my, my view on it was I wanted to approach this book with no judgment. So I'm like, maybe that's all right. You know, maybe you wake up for 40 years and every day you look over at your partner in the morning and you're like, thank God you're so hot. (laughs) It makes me so happy. Makes me want to be with you for forever. Uh, I was open to that idea. But then if you look at the longitudinal uh, outcomes, right, kind of your return on investment for having a 
attractive partner or wealthy partner. It's just not great. So for physical attractiveness, there's really no return on investment from that. Some studies find a small return on it, but um, that's not great. Uh, for wealth, it's a little more complicated, but it's not a huge return for that either. What you want to do with wealth is you want to get above the poverty line, basically. Um, if you're really stressed out as a couple because you're struggling to meet your basic needs, that will negatively impact your happiness or your stability. But, uh, you know, beyond that, actually, it's a diminishing return. So I, I tell folks, hey, if you have a partner who makes $70,000, uh, it's not going to make a difference if you had a partner who made $700,000. Mm-hmm. You might have some nicer things. But, um, you know, as far as your happiness in your marriage and the stability of that marriage, there's really no difference between those two. So, yeah, so that's what people pay more attention to. But if you're a clever dater, then you could say to yourself, okay, so people are overvaluing physical attractiveness. They're overvaluing wealth. You want a little bit of that, right? You want to be attracted to your partner, obviously. Uh, You want to be comfortable as a couple, but let's not go crazy on those. So if that's the case, then you can probably clean up on traits that are actually more important. So one uh, way, I framed it a few different ways. There's a few different chapters on it, but one way you could do it, for example, is with personality. So think about the personality traits to value in somebody. You know, people might, listeners just might think through real quick, what would be some personality traits you would want? It turns out there's some that stand out far above others. So I I tell folks, if I, my first wish would be get someone who's emotionally stable. So relatively low on neuroticism, pretty emotionally stable. The dividends from that are huge. So it has a huge impact on your uh, marital happiness, has a huge impact on your marital stability. But when you look at how people value that in dating, it falls to eighth or ninth in their priorities. So while that sounds like common sense, it's also the case that people don't use that common sense <laughs> when they're choosing a partner. Uh, another quality that's really important is someone who's agreeable or, or kind or empathic. Uh, this kind of you know, kindness is also overlooked uh, a lot of times. Women do a better job, actually. Heterosexual women do a better job. They make that their third wish. Uh, but it falls further down the list for, uh, for men. And, uh, you know, having a kind partner, I think gets a bad rap sometimes in our culture. You know, if you introduce a new person you're dating to your friends, and let's say that person, you know, goes to the restroom real quick, and then you're gossiping about, so what do you think? If your friend said, oh, yeah, he's a nice guy, you'd almost be insulted. <laughs> like This was their evaluation. Right. Uh, but, you know, the nice guys are going to be more empathic. They're going to be more trusting. Uh, they're going to be more interested in making sure that you get what you need. And you also say uh, that be better in bed. Yeah, surprise, you know, and that's a little bit of a counterintuitive thing, a little bit like, oh, nice guy, better in bed. But yeah, so now their trait plays out sexually where because they're more empathic, they're interested not in how do I get what I need, mm-hmm. they're interested in how do I make sure you get yours, <laughs> basically. And so as a result of that, they're going to ask more questions or going to ask for more feedback. It is a little bit of an art form, right? In, in sexual relations to figure out exactly what works for this particular partner. And someone who's kind will be more likely 
to one, think about your needs in the first place, and then two, engage in the questions and process needed to kind of perfect, <laughs> right? The techniques necessary to have a gratifying sexual relationship. Right, and in some ways I think to myself that the the whole idea of hotness and the whole idea of wealth, I mean, uh, you know, in most relationships, you're, you're physically we age, right? I mean, I've had three kids, um, you know, uh, we, we don't get the same kind of exercise we used to get when we were in our twenties. Um, you know, things happen, you have surgeries, you have the, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. Same thing with wealth. I mean, when Adam and I first got married, uh, I never could have foreseen the financial issues we would have had from the, you know, the strong financial place he was in when we met to, you know, there was just absolutely no, you know, you talk about like a crystal ball there, there was nothing could have shown me that, oh my gosh, we are going to struggle financially so greatly. Um, and that is something also that I think like when we're picking a partner, you know, is it okay, they're wealthy. Are they always going to be wealthy? Who knows? Are they always going to be hot? I don't know. Right. Yeah. There yeah. Are- totally tough to tell. Yeah. Yeah. But there are some things that you say, you know, um, that there are certain things that you, you say marriages and babies don't change people. Can you explain this? Cause I know, obviously, you know, you're not talking about physical or whatever you're talking about, mm. um, personality characteristics, because a lot of times we will say you've changed or, you know, after we had kids or you, but yet I think the underlying foundations of those personality traits are already there. They're just kind of exacerbated by what's ever going on in life. Is that yeah, true? That, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, so when I say that, um, it's, it's not to say that the marriage won't change uh, or, or go through right ups and downs or, or people might not have their fluctuations. Um, yeah. It's more so in the sense that sometimes dating couples will think that, well, if we get married, it will solve the problems that we have. Or, or sometimes married couples might think like, well, if we have a kid, it'll solve some of these problems that we have, let's say a commitment issue. Uh, and it never does. I mean, it, it just never does. It is such a poor bet. <laughs> to, and it's understandable. Like I've, I have empathy for that because I, I can see the logic there. It's just that it doesn't work out. You know, mar- uh, having kids, for example, uh, I, I don't have kids, so I can't speak with expertise. I don't want to lecture you on something <laughs> I haven't had first and experience with, but, uh, you know, the data on that, I think is really interesting. And it's just this, it's this magnifier. And so, you know, you're going to develop some more meaningful ties with your partner and in your life because of having kids, uh, that'll come with time, but some of the stresses that were there, they'll just get more stressful. You know, if you had some financial problems, that'll probably get more stressful. Kids are expensive. You know, if you were having issues with, time management. <laughs> that's a huge thing that's going to be a, a heck of a lot more stressful. So yeah, you know, it's uh, things will change financially, things might change as far as people's physical appearance. And there's inevitably, right, those rough patches. I, I remember when I was in college, I was with my friend, Rich, who's, you know, still a great friend. And we went to visit his grandparents in their retirement community. They were awesome, and they had been married for over 50 years. I, I was really lucky that I'd gotten to know, know them over the years. You know, we were just talking with, uh, with Grandpa one day and, uh, about the marriage and relationships, and he was giving us some advice. 
I said, yeah, well, you know, boys, because you have your tough years. And I remember Rich and I, our mouths just dropped open. <laughs> we're like, whoa, 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 grandpa. Tough years, you know, because like we're 20 years old. He's like, oh, yeah. And, you know, and here's this really idyllic marriage. It didn't change my view of that. But yeah, he was totally right. We had no clue that that's even in the best of marriages, that's, that's going to happen. So it's really then about, hey, does this person have the dispositions or the values or the attitudes that are going to help us get through that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so, so important. Um, I, I, I feel like I feel like there are so many different things, you know, that I want to tell my kids about finding the right partner and everything. And it is so hard because we are bombarded with, you know, especially with our young kids and uh, teenagers and everything, and even into adulthood movies and TV shows and magazines and everything uh, about that, like you say, the happily ever after, you know, the prince and princess, the, you know, it's getting, we're getting, a, it's getting a little better. We have, you know, now we have like Encanto and we have, you know, uh, Moana and all these things where it's, you know, not, they're trying to focus less, I think on, you know, rescued love and everything, but it is true that they are, whether or not, you know, they're watching new movies, old movies, new shows, old shows, there is that recurring theme throughout. And, and do you think that it messes up our values and our, our insight about finding a, a good partner in life? I, I certainly do. Uh, I love Encanto, by the way. I just watched it last night. Fantastic, <laughs> so, right? So, so, good, so funny. Uh, but I, and I do love that shift, too, that they're changing some of those children's narratives to be like, you don't got to be rescued by a man or, right. you know, whatever it might be. I think it's, it's trending in a healthy direction. Uh, but you are right. Uh, there's still this kind of like overwhelming narrative that finding love is this fatalistic thing. It's magical. Uh, and then the story, of course, always ends with the happily, but not the ever after. You assume the ever after, but you don't see year two of the <laughs> marriage or something like that. Uh, exactly. You assume <laughs> that's going to be the case, right? I want to see Little Mermaid and Eric 10 years later with three kids. That's that's right. The mortgage and three kids. Uh, Yeah. No, you know, I actually dug into a little bit of history to to investigate this because I'm like, where did this weirdness come from? Um, Because for most of human history, marriage was this real transactional kind of thing. It's like, hey, I'll give you three cows for daughter's hand in marriage. And you just kind of got stuck with somebody that your parents arranged for you or your village arranged for you. Um, I'm not saying that's better or worse or whatever. I don't think we would like it, you know, kind of knowing the lives we've had, but uh, that's the way it operated for, for a lot of time. And in some cultures still operates that way. So I was like, where did this like romanticized notion of love come from? And, you know, no surprise, I guess it came from the romantic era of art music in the kind of late 1800s. And, there was this dramatic shift in culture where all of a sudden having strong, passionate feelings, you know, whether it was the angsty, like, oh, I'm a tortured artist <laughs> kind of thing, uh, or, you know, oh, I'm so elated and, and joyful. It, it actually, during that time, became a moral imperative to feel these passionate emotions. And people thought that if you weren't feeling these passionate emotions in your art or your music or your love, um, that you were actually morally flawed in some way. And ever since the, the late 
really 1800s, we've held on to that same ideal. And of course, we can see it all the time now. And it's, it's not just in our relation, you know, uh, how we choose partners and our media. It's also on our social media, like everything has to be extreme or totally awesome, or I don't even know what the words are, you know, now. Um, but yeah, there just has to be this peak emotional experience. And I think for a lot of young people, even for some of us, so, you know, uh, adults, it's like exhausting to try to live your life that way. Yeah. And it's a really unhelpful way to frame. Yeah. Oh, it's inevitably disappointing. Yeah. And it's, it's a totally counterproductive way to think about a romantic relationship where you'll have to be steadfast for decades. That, that's really the key, right? You need to be steadfast and committed and persistent. Um, it's kind of the opposite in some ways of this uh, romanticized ideal that the, that the media gives us sometimes. Right. Right. So mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com for, for those of us who do have young kids and everything, I mean, do you have any ideas of like, not that you're going to sit down with your four-year-old and be like, listen, this is, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. as they're getting, the the world. I have teenagers and stuff who are obsessed with, you know, like the Twilight series and the, you know, all the, the different um, love stories. I, I mean, do you think it's helpful for us to sort of like say to our kids, even though they're going to say, I know mom, it's not real. I get it. But kind of to dissect that a little bit and be like, listen, you know, this is not how it goes. And, you know, just to, right. to kind, kind of keep that conversation open. Yeah, I, I, I think that's so great, you know, that you're thinking, you, you know, you kind of stop, you stop yourself and you think, okay, so what's actually going to be helpful, which I, I think, gosh, parents just want the best for their kids. And sometimes from good intention, they just kind of race into something without pausing, like this conversation you and I are having right now. Uh, and it sounds like you're just having in general where it's like, what's actually the message that's going to be the most productive. And um, I think, I, I think you, your, your instinct about that is right from, from the feedback I've gotten from, uh, from parents who want to talk to their kids about this kind of stuff, you know, I'll visit high schools or colleges or whatever, and end up talking to young people about their relationships informally a little bit um they yeah they really react poorly to don't do x y and z right in general um so yeah i i kind of say like hey twilight like isn't that fun (laughs) isn't that like a cool kind of like story oh love it you know and i'm just like it's a story though and and look, you're going to, uh, to the teenager, I'll say like, hey, you're probably feeling this at times or you're going to feel it and you're going to fall in what us nerdy researchers call passionate love. Uh-huh. And that's that pounding heart, butterflies in the stomach, look, <laughs> did they text me back kind of feeling. And it is one of the most wonderful feelings you will feel your entire life. And that's awesome. And, and I think you should enjoy it. 
now let me just tell you one old man thing, <laughs> teenager. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also the case that when they do these brain scans, these neuroimage scans, they see that your ability to make good decisions just goes, it totally gets shut down. <laughs> like it's not only shut down, it's actually like a car that's been in negative 20 degree weather. It's actually really hard to start it. So I'm not saying you're going to do that. I'm just saying that's the deal. And that's the deal for everybody. So for you, I just want you to make your own decisions about how you want to handle that. Cause I want you to feel like all those awesome, like emotions. I want you to feel the butterflies and the heart pounding uh, and just really in- enjoy that. At the same time, as your parent, as your guest speaker comes <laughs> to your high school, whatever, <laughs> uh, I just don't want you to do something dumb that's going to, you know, compromise your ability to have a great relationships going forward. So, you know, take some time and, and think about that for yourself and get really stubborn and resolute uh, about what your boundaries are going to be there. Mm, I know boundaries. Yeah, that's that's a tough one with kids. Uh, but yeah, no, it, yeah, no, but it's true. I mean, you know, it, it is. Uh, it is hard to express to them. I think like you, when you said when you were 20 years old and, you know, and his grandfather said to you, you're going to have hard years. It is hard for them to foresee and, and to express to them, look, you know, uh, you, this is not a, a, a one year deal. This is, you know, hopefully a, a long-term thing. And, and that certainly looks different than, you know, a short-term, like you said, investment, but, the, the idea of passionate love and the falling deeply in love and the feelings that you get from that and everything, um, obviously, like you said, the most magical feeling in the world. And then after a few years, you know, the research shows you say that it sort of starts to fizzle, especially kind of around your six to seven is sort of, I don't know, it seems like the yeah. myth number kind of. <laughs> right. Um, but so many of us, you know, it, it, it's so distressing and it's so disappointing to think okay, well, I had that feeling and now, you know, I'm never going to feel it again. Um, Is it the type of thing, is it something that you can reignite, you know, over and over again in your own relationship? And I, I, I do know that, you know, I, listen, the, the marriage that we have on a Tuesday morning at 8am is, you know, much different than the marriage we have on a resort Island, you know, at 8.30pm over a steak dinner and some wine, like, exactly. You know, yeah. it, it's, it's all very different. Um, but, you know, but, but there is part of us that say, oh, man, you know, I don't, I don't want to be like, all right, the only way I'm going to ever have that that feeling again is, is if I, you know, get out in the dating world and I refall in love or so, you know, I, what's your advice for all of that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you know, sometimes people disappointed by the, the trajectory of this, of these, uh, this data for passionate love, they'll say, well, you know, why can't you just stay in it for forever? Um, I usually just say you would die, you know, <laughs> like, uh, uh, <laughs> pounding hard that's like high blood pressure you know and uh, the butterflies in the stomach those are hormones that would eventually burn holes in your, in your stomach <laughs> lining you know and i'm not saying anyone's gonna have uh, physical problems from, from feeling that for you know a few years or anything like that but yeah we just can't and we also have to go you know live our lives and go to work and <laughs> think straight and all these other things so um so it's kind of natural that that would that that would happen but it can certainly uh, come back and, and, but it just kind of comes back in moments, you know, it's that 
maybe it's at 8.30 at the resort, you know? But yeah. I, I think there's also, I think one of the things that's so cool is when I, I just hear more about people's love lives than maybe the average guy. Cause you know, people will send me a social media message or an email to be like, Hey, I read your book. And, you know, this thing happened. And, um, so I actually hear some really uplifting things and some of my favorite stories people pass along are when they feel that passionate love that pounding heart or butterflies in the stomach but now they feel it in combination with that meaning mm. that they've built through years of marriage now it's this mixture of oh there's that excitement and that physiology but it's now like amplified by this meaningfulness right mm. and sometimes that happens when like I don't know maybe the kid had something disappointing happen in, in middle school and you know, the husband handles that in such a graceful, beautiful way. And you're just kind of kicking back watching that being like, oh my gosh, I am so in love with you. <laughs> like, totally. and you know, uh, that's to me, that's like better, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, can I you love that, that yeah. 24 hours a day? No, you know, and you, you see all these problems, but uh, I don't know. It certainly does come back and but partly too, the other thing, there's this researcher, Art Aaron, who I really love. He was actually one of the researchers behind the 36, 36 questions to fall in love that kind of went viral in the New York Times. Uh-huh. He's done, done a bunch of other work. Some of it's been on how do you keep that passion alive in the, in the romance? And, um, you know, it's like, yeah, you got to be intentional about it. It's not just going to, you know, fall out of a tree and happen. So if you can do it, Yes, you know, save up a little bit and, and, and make the time to go to that resort. Uh, take the time to say, hey, kids, mom and dad are taking what, what, what you know, I, I, I don't know, whatever kind of dance class, you know, uh, every Thursday night for the next two months. So take care of yourself, you know, on, yeah. on those nights. Yeah. And yeah, you'd be stressed out like, oh, gosh, you know, I have so many things to do and whatever. But, you know, once you get to the to the event, it's great. You're like, gosh, why you should be doing more of this kind of stuff. So yeah, it does have to be the intentional kind of planning part. I think sometimes couples feel like oh, it feels a little bit contrived and I understand that, but once you're in it, like it's great, you right. know? So, so you just got to do it. And I think that also goes with the physical attraction too, because, you know, there have been times when I, you know, when I first fell in love with Adam and everything, I remember I was, you know, I thought he was the most handsome guy and everything really. And at times in our relationship, it still is sort of like, you know, when we're in a really good place, I look at him and I'm like, oh my God, I just, I, I'm I'm his physical, I'm so physically attracted to him and everything. Mm -hmm. And then he, he looks exactly the same, but when we're in the middle of a fight or we're not in a good place, or we're feeling like we're on two totally different wavelengths, I look at him and I'm like, "Mm, there's no physical attraction there whatsoever. So I just, I also think that 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 is something that, you know, it's, it's not a, 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 an all or nothing kind of deal, you know? And, and I do feel like it's something that uh, also just like anything else can change over time. And, you know, maybe that lust, like, you know, is going to build, like you said, for when you look at somebody and they're helping your kid or, you know, they're helping your sick parent or they're, uh, you know, uh, helping with the laundry in the house, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm a full, I fully believe in chore play, like with that, you know, helping around the house and everything, <laughs> but it is, it is true that, you know, I do feel like 
that investment in the beginning, like you said, there's this small return, but yet there, it doesn't mean that if, if you're not, you know, if you're not dumbstruck and you're not just completely infatuated with looks in the beginning, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that the physical attraction is not going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right about that. You know, and one of the things, uh, college students seem to relate to this a little bit more, but one of the things I'll say is like, you know, you want to, you know, feeling when you think someone's cute or whatever, or sometimes maybe even you thought they were average <laughs> looking, but then you get to know them and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm really like physically attracted to this person now. Right. I'm like, that's kind of the principle. Like you might be attracted, physically attracted to your partner from the get-go and that's great and whatever, but it also needs to be the kind of person where you think to yourself, I could, if this person was average looking or even maybe not that great looking, I think I would like fall in love with them anyways. I'd feel that lust for them anyways, because they have this personality and they have these values that like, you can't help, right? But feel their attraction magnify. I'm like, if you feel that with a partner, whether the, there's the initial kind of love at first sight or whatever, or not, um, that, that's what you need. Because then like you're saying, right? You're 10 years in a marriage, 20 years in a marriage. And then you're just like looking at your partner and you've both gone through changes or whatever, but you're like, man, I'm like falling in love with you all over again, or I'm seeing you in this new light now. Uh, it's pretty beautiful. I think when that happens. Right. Right. And the last thing I want to ask you about what, which um, I basically just coming from me because I, I, you know, I've been married now for 20 years and everything, mm -hmm. the three wishes thing, all I could think about when I was, cause I'm not dating right now and I'm not looking for a partner, but I kept thinking to myself, um, I wonder if I can use this in my marriage anyway, because there are times when we are fighting or, you know, arguing and the argument goes in, you know, 25 different directions. I start being upset about this thing and then I'm bringing up, you know, X, Y, and Z and we're all over the place and nothing gets accomplished because, you know, we just haven't stuck to the thing, the task at hand. And I'm wondering if with the three wishes, you know, if there's any research or, or if you have any insight into whether or not we can use that as a, even when you're dating, even when you're married, you know, even your relationships, um, to boil it down to, okay, I, I'm not going to, I can't focus on everything, right? I can't constantly be following this person around the house saying you need to do, you know, one, two, three, four, five, you need to change this. You need to work on this. Blah, blah, blah. If we boil it down again to those three wishes, is that, is that helpful to, to think to yourself? Okay. I got to just, all right. Yes. I hate the way, you know, he, he acts when he's in the bathroom and he leaves his crap all over the place, but I got bigger fish to fry. Right. right, right. I got Theoretically, to, yeah. You know, to think about that stuff and, and to say, these are the things I'm going to hone in on and the rest of it. I'm just, I, as much as it might kill me, you know, slowly, I got to just let it all go. Is, is there any insight into whether then those three wishes or those three things are more likely to, be uh you know to be fixed or to yeah. change yeah 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 i think your intuition about that is is spot on so um there's kind of two ways i guess i'd see it um you know one is that it's kind of surprised how many married people read read this uh, dating <laughs> book and yeah. uh one of the things i heard from folks is they're like you know i realized 
like they realized some of the great traits that they chose in their partner. I kind of reminded them like, oh, my partner has all these good qualities and I kind of take it for granted sometimes. So I think that's one way that, you know, married couples and long-term relationships can be like, gosh, my parent, you know, my, my partner is really kind or they're really stable and just like things are gone really bad, you know? Um, it's actually hard to find those things. So I think it's good to have that gratitude for the traits and characteristics one did get in their partner. Now, more to your point, which is about, could we kind of use the three wishes principle with navigating some of the challenges uh, that one might have in a relationship, right? And yeah, I, I think that's totally a, a great principle to go with because if you're doing, trying to do everything, you're doing nothing, and then it just puts this negative tone on everything. And now it's, it's almost like now you're with a teenager. <laughs> it's right. like counterproductive, anything you say, right? So if you can identify three things, and one of the things I, I might extrapolate on a bit here is that there's tasks or there's like moments where couples can get frustrated or partners can get frustrated with each other. Your crap's all over the bathroom, for example. Uh, you didn't fill up the ice cube tray after you took the ice out or I don't know. And one of the things I, I think that's helpful sometimes is then to think to yourself, so what's the underlying disposition that's leading to all these things? And so I might say, for example, if the bathroom's a mess, ice cube tray is not being <laughs> refilled. That's kind of like a low conscientiousness, it's, right? That's kind of like driving all of these different things or the partner's late too. This would also be low conscientiousness. And then you can kind of, you can kind of say the partner like, hey, so like, you know, it bugs me when the bathroom's a mess, the ice cube tray is you being late. Um, and I know you try. But like, I know it's hard for you sometimes to just keep things in order. So now what you've done is you've identified the underlying intention or the underlying disposition. Now you kind of get like a bunch, <laughs> bunch of things for one thing. Because um, you're saying like, I understand that about you. And I understand there's things about me that, you know, kind of drive you a little bonkers sometimes. But there's a few things that sprout out of that. So you know, if we can just have like an open dialogue about when you are low conscientious or you're low attention to detail and just how that, how that makes me feel or, or what that leads to, it would just be one thing if we could focus on that, that would be really helpful to me. So that would be my advice. Like, uh, yeah, narrow it down. But let's get you let's get you multiple things. Here. <laughs> right, right? It is true. It's all part of a, a larger character trait, a larger issue. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. yeah. So one of the add ons they've done actually to, you know, they found like cognitive behavioral therapy for couples is, is really effective. So let's change the way we think about things. Let's change some of the behaviors. But one of the add ons that's been really useful over the, the past few years is what they call an acceptance component. And what this means is you're not resigning yourself <laughs> to live with certain things. Uh, you're not giving up. It doesn't make excuses for the person who's doing the things that annoy the other partner. But rather you're just saying, hey, there's things about my partner that are probably always gonna bug me <laughs> or always not gonna be just right. Let's be honest with ourselves about what those things are. And when certain things happen or certain events happen in a relationship that are a byproduct of that, let's not be surprised by it. You know, I, I had one couple I was working with in couples therapy and 
the guy would leave his nasty socks on the ground in the entryway when he came in every day. And then the wife had to pick him up. I'm like, yeah, that sucks, <laughs> you know, but she would get really, really like super angry about it. And so I asked her, I said, for the first year you've been married, how many days have you picked up his nasty socks out of the entryway? She said 365 days. <laughs> yeah. I said, that's, that's right. And I'm like, I pointed at him and I said, I'm not letting you off the hook because that's not acceptable. So I went back to the wife and I said, but let me ask you this. I'm just going to push you a little bit here. So why does that surprise you? You know? And she said, you know, you got a point <laughs> there. And so now we're in a position where, okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Look, buddy, you got to improve. <laughs> we got to do better here. Um, but hey, on the reaction side, let's just figure out a more productive way to handle that. Mm, right, right. Well, thank you so much. I mean, the book is great. And you were saying about married people, you're surprised how many married people uh, read it. And and first of all, I there was I think there's so many other takeaways other than just dating, but also uh, as someone raising kids, you know, this is something that we think we really do want to be able to guide our children in a direction, maybe whether it's, you know, maybe keeping them from making some of the mistakes we made, or also, you know, some of the positive things that we did that we want to look back and be like, oh, wow, you know, I actually did that well. And I kind of want them to, to do it as well. But, but yeah. I do think that, you know, it is something that, especially in today, uh, with, like you said, all the options out there and everything, it is something that is important to, to think about because it is something that's really tough to navigate. So yeah, sure, sure is, you know, and I, I appreciate your uh, feedback on. Yeah, on no, it's and, true. Yeah. You know, one of the things when I, was, when I was writing the science of happily ever after, I thought, because so many, uh, it, it was my impression that a lot of, you know, dating books or relationship books, it's kind of like, Hey, I did it this way. So you should do it this way too. And I just thought, you know, people don't like to be told what to do and, yeah especially in a relationships, right? So uh, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could just do this, like, it's just the facts here and uh, you can do what you want with, with these facts. Um, that was kind of one of the goals. So, I, you yeah. know, it's, I really appreciate this conversation because I hadn't thought about kids and teenagers for a while and how parents might use some of it to talk to their kids and teenagers. Oh, definitely. But, definitely. You know, and and yeah. what you're saying uh, about, you know, Adam and I, we talk all the time on the podcast that one of our, our, our greatest mistakes was that probably for like the first 15 years of our marriage, we were just replicating what our parents did. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens a lot, you know, and I think we just, uh, we kind of only see so many relationships close up in action when we're younger. And um, so the, all this and having all this information and being able to make informed decisions without the input of, you know, uh, just, just men copying what other relationships have done is really, yeah. is really helpful. Um, tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, well, let's see, they could go to tie and, uh, find probably what they need there. They can find me at that handle on social media too. And, uh, yeah, there's links to the book and everything if someone's interested in that kind of thing. But uh, I, I appreciate you having me on today. This is a really interesting conversation. And no, I love the, you're sharing these messages and these insights with folks. 
Oh, you too. And I, I want to have you back on to talk about the, uh, the, the science of why we're socially awkward, because that is, I feel like that is my mantra of, you know, what socially awkward thing am I going to do today? So we'll have to do <laughs> some empathy for that. Trust me. So. <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have to chat again. If, you know, if you're, if you're up for it and, uh, and talk all about that, cause that's also super interesting. You are living my dream, uh, you know, researching all of these incredible topics. So thank you so much, Ty. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. 